0: Hello, this is Mike Burek, your host and producer of Knenitsya, The Well, a podcast series about interesting and noteworthy Ukrainians from around the globe. Today is Thursday, September 15th, 2022. Our guest for this episode is Michael Bosirku, who is an independent global affairs analyst and had been a journalist for many years. And this episode is produced for the Ukrainian Weekly, an English-language newspaper that has been published in the U.S. for the global Ukrainian community since 1933. Welcome, Michael. How are you? Hi, it's
1: good to, good to be with you. I'm fine and uh, so happy to um, be involved in something regarding the U- Ukrainian Weekly, having had worked there many, many years ago. It was part of my start into journalism.
0: To get started, can you talk a little bit about your educational and professional background? Sure.
1: Well, you know, uh, it was funny. I was just talking to somebody yesterday about my start in journalism. And, uh, you know, in the day, uh, you know, it would be expected that one would go to journalism school or journalism faculty to get you started in this profession. But I actually applied at Carleton University in Ottawa and was rejected. (laughs) Because I was told my marks uh, weren't high enough. So, you know, in that fighting Ukrainian spirit that we all have, I said, well, this isn't going to deter me. So I signed up for a program called mass communication, which was a bit of a mishmash of everything. But it it really prepared me, I think, even better for a career in journalism later on, because you know you have what much wider exposure to different disciplines. And um, at the same time, uh, I also volunteered for our campus radio station, the best. Radio, campus radio station in Canada at the time, CKZU-FM, where I produced a Ukrainian uh, current affairs program called Nash Volos, or Our Voice. And um, it went really well. We were really into it. And in after, I think, two or three years, it actually won the best public affairs program award at the station big honor for us but you know that's where I really really I feel learned kind of the nuts and bolts of uh, journalism radio production that sort of thing and then also yeah um those days at the weekly uh we had some huge stories come our way and of course the biggest was in 1986 with the uh disaster, the explosion at the uh, Chernobyl nuclear plant. We covered that um, as best we could in those days. Um, I actually outline it in my book, Digital Pandemic. There's a chapter on Chernobyl. But uh, I talk about how we were kind of the focus of media attention. Because in those days, of course, uh, not only did the Soviets try to deny it, lie about the accident and cover it up. But uh, you know we didn't have internet in those days, of course, and uh we had to rely on crackling phone lines basically to get our information but we um we pushed the story as far as we could, and we were way ahead of many others so that is something uh i'll never forget and then um you know the other thing in terms of my career, what really helped propel it are very uh wonderful and passionate mentors uh, one of them is victor mallorick uh, a very well known investigative journalist here in Canada, who also has Ukrainian roots. Uh, I have other mentors here and there who, you know, either at times of doubt or at challenging times, they really helped me. And um, I uh, got a big break with a story in Canada at our national newspaper, The Globe and Mail. Uh, That gave me a boost. Uh, I went and uh, worked in Winnipeg, Manitoba, at the Winnipeg Free Press for a year covered city hall there. And then um, again, without any planning, which is most of what my career was like, there was no real blueprint. I went to Asia and got a job with the leading newspaper and English paper in Hong Kong, the South China Morning Post at the time was owned by Murdoch and News Corp. Uh, But that was the opening of a 10 year kind of odyssey of uh, covering uh, Asia. I uh, worked for them in Manila, I was part of a, of another startup newspaper after that called Eastern Express in Hong Kong and then another one after that called Asia Times in Bangkok, which is which had aimed at the time to be kind of the Wall Street Journal of Asia. Nowadays, I, I'm not really a journalist, but more I'd say a global affairs analyst, or commentator. I look at the world, I try to connect the dots and make sense. I'm a very, very complicated uh, planet right now and of course, most recently including the the war in Ukraine. Of course, I'm a, I always look forward to continuing my work uh, in Ukraine and elsewhere in the world, because, uh, you know, what listeners should understand is uh, what happens, whether it's in Ukraine or China or elsewhere, uh, really has, because of our interconnectedness, really has the ability to cause a domino effect and affect people a world away.
0: Michael, what about your Ukrainian roots? Uh, Did your family come from Ukraine to Canada? If so, when and from which villages?
1: Yeah, so both my parents uh, came uh, from Ukraine, from Western Ukraine. My mother came to Canada when she was about four, my father after the war. And they're both kind of roughly from the same er areas, uh, Ternopol. And uh, my father, who is well-known in the Ukrainian community, he was an expert in church uh, state politics, uh, came from the very famous uh, town of Buchach in Western Ukraine, uh, also known by the way these days of... uh, producing uh, the best apples in the region because and a lot of intellectuals come over there and so on. It's a beautiful place. I was recently there. But they uh, they came, my parents came to Canada, got introduced and married here and uh, had six kids, including me. But um, the point I wanted to make with my parents here is that they uh, really insisted that we speak Ukrainian at home, that we go to Ukrainian school every Saturday. Ukrainian dancing, uh, Ukrainian scouts. I always joke that I never, being Canadian, I never learned how to play hockey because my Saturdays were just too busy with Ukrainian community events. Uh, and also, I didn't start dating until quite late because of the same reason. But, uh, you know, of course, at times we complained about all the pressures, especially having to learn Ukrainian because we also um, grew up in Ottawa and uh, we also uh, had to learn uh, French in school as well in, in you know, public or Catholic schools. So that was a lot of pressure, we thought. But, uh, you know, these days, of course, I'm extremely grateful because of the uh, circle of journalists and commentators who are in Ukraine right now. I'm able to go through the Ukrainian language telegram channels. I'm able to u- listen to Ukrainian news on TV and radio. I'm able to go to remote areas and talk to people in their native language. And I, I even have the capability to get, to do Ukrainian language interviews on Ukrainian television and radio. So huge difference. And of course, you know, you feel your ability to uh, not only understand people because of their language, but because of perhaps what they've gone through. Uh, we learned so much in history and, you know, myself, including from working in the Ukrainian Weekly about the 32-33 Holodomor of the Great Famine and, um, you know, stealing of grain, the uh, sending of uh, dissidents, intellectuals to the gulag, the persecution of the, the church, the persecution of the language. I mean, all of that I see history repeating itself, and I've said this many times on air, including on CNN, about what you know what's happening now in Ukraine. It's absolutely shocking what we're seeing happening in front of us, but I'm able to relate that back to what happened in history. Another thing, by the way, that I put forth at the beginning of the war when I was on CNN a lot in Lviv in is that, you know, I pointed out to people that here in Lviv, this is the Center of patriotism in Ukraine. This is the uh, where a lot of uh, Ukrainian dissidents, intellectuals came from. This is where a lot of the folks um, who immigrated to Canada and Ukraine came from. So it has incredible significance. And my fear earlier on was that uh, a twisted uh, mind like Mr. Putin would target uh, Lviv, but so far it's been largely spared. So yeah, everything that happened uh, way way back has. Uh, uh, influenced me and helped me in the work I'm currently doing.
0: So I understand you were a spokesperson for the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, including during the period of the uh, shootdown of Malaysia Airlines Flight 17 over Eastern Ukraine in 2014. How difficult was it to uncover conclusive evidence of Russian involvement in this disaster?
1: Yeah, well, that was a momentous moment for all of us, uh, including for me, of course. And let's be clear that we were um, observers. We weren't investigators. The investigative part was left up to uh, representatives of the grieving nations led by the Dutch. But I was um, sent to Ukraine uh, in 2014 as a secondee from Canada. And this was right after uh, the uh, illegal annexation of Crimea and the occupation of uh, the Donbass. I have to be frank with you, I did not give it much thought because it happened so quickly, as many things do in my career. But I am so glad I went because right away, uh, I mean, in the first uh, weeks of uh, my kind of appointment there, uh, we had two sets of kidnappings of colleagues. We had uh, just after I arrived a kidnapping of a group of six uh there were more military observers not actually from our special monitoring mission group but then later on uh we had two groups of colleagues held for around a month time in in Donbass and that was a very very difficult time because uh one one of the two groups they were held in communicado and we really feared for their lives but fortunately everyone was released unharmed and then not long after that was, yes, the downing of MH17, which is a Malaysian Airlines Boeing 777, which at the time was en route uh, from Amsterdam to um, Kuala Lumpur. And uh, 298 souls perished in that from many, many different nations. But of course, there were many uh, from the Netherlands aboard that flight. So, uh, getting to know the case very well, the relatives, and being in the, in the Netherlands, I realized. That being such a small country, this horrible tragedy touched pretty much everyone in that country quite uh, directly. Uh, it'll be a time that I will never forget because uh, we were uh, the first international presence to be on site uh, a little after twenty some hours after the flight came down, after the plane came down. So there was still smoldering records, there was bodies all over the place, and uh, we arrived and were if I can put it that way, by a ragtag group of uh, uh, thugs, Russian-backed thugs uh, from Donetsk. And they gave us very limited access at first, but because of our ability to uh, sit down with them, negotiate with, with them, we were able to gain access for the coming days and also for longer periods of time. That crash site uh, was about 35 square kilometers, if I remember correctly. So it's a huge, huge area to comb uh, over. And, you know, Michael, like I got to tell you, um, this, as soon as I arrived there, I said, I cannot believe this is happening. Uh, because I, um, of course, not only have Ukrainian roots, as, I, as I've explained, but I've lived in Malaysia, <laughs> I've covered Malaysia Airlines, I've covered aviation. So All of this uh, came together because I basically became the spokesperson for this crash. I mean, there's no (laughs) debating whether I'm going to do it or not. You just go in and you do it. Uh, So uh, there were pretty much 18, 19 hour days of speaking to worldwide media uh, nonstop. And um, it was something that my inner self said, I am here for a reason. I'm here at the right place at the right time and I'm going to do the best I can and I said to myself you know the relatives don't even have access to the crash site they can't come anywhere close so our role not only me but the whole team's role is to show them uh, what what we're seeing uh, explain to them what's being done the progress and everything so i think uh, we played a very very big role in helping to kind of uh, connect the dots for the relatives yesterday it was pointed out by experts that You know, this is a chilling thing to say, but I have to say it so everyone is aware is that the skies are no safer now uh, than they were um, in the downing of M817. Because if rogue states are allowed to, uh, with impunity, fire up missiles to to civilian airliners, um, you know, what does that say about the safety of commercial aviation? And sadly, and it was brought out yesterday, is uh, the International Civil Aviation Organization has done very little. Uh, to make the skies safer because of those shoot-downs. Yeah, uh, this is something people should think about and, and not forget, of course, but they should think about it. And they should press uh, their respective uh, leaders to uh, create uh, an environment where we can travel more safely.
0: Michael, let's turn our attention to the current war in Ukraine. In your latest op-ed for the Toronto Globe and Mail newspaper in Canada, you argue that Russia's recklessness in Zaporizhia at Europe's largest nuclear power plant could cause a global catastrophe. What do you think should be done now to avert this?
1: Yeah, well, you know, again, here we go. History repeating itself, right? Uh, you know, here we have uh, a unimaginable scenario, careless scenario happening at Europe's largest nuclear power plant. Near Zaporizhia, so early on in the war, uh, the Russians, as they were doing, they, they were doing their inv- carrying out their invasion. They also took over Chernobyl, uh, you know, and uh, they uh, harassed uh, employees there at the plant. They ordered them around. They uh, raided their belongings, but they also—it's uh, unbelievable. I can't believe it to this day. But they started doing things like digging trenches in heavily contaminated radioactive soil and spreading it. Uh, Who knows what happened to these chaps who did such a careless thing. And then, yeah, later on, they um, occupied that area around Zaporizhia and they took over the plant. So there uh, they've parked their military vehicles on site. They've uh, harassed plant employees. And I mean really harassed. Uh, They're under extreme pressure. They're, for example, escorted at gunpoint to the lavatory on their brakes. And, you know, in a nuclear power plant such as this, there's very little room for error. So if you have staff who are operating gunpoint and are distressed and are tired, as is the situation here, it's a very, uh, very dangerous situation. And then also, you know, the basically what the Russians are doing are nuclear blackmail. They're um, firing from the plant because, again, this is the other scary thing. There is a lot of ammunition there. And, um, you know, they're doing this knowing that the Ukrainians cannot fire back at them because it could, you know, cause harm to the plant and then radiation leak. What's happened more recently is the uh, Russians have um, fired upon the power lines that... Uh, supply the plant and that also allow electricity from the plant to go to to into the into the ukrainian power grid and uh, the big fear right now is that the plant will not have the ability to cool itself so it's been gradually shut down in fact if i'm not mistaken at the moment all of the reactors are shut down and it's going to be going into kind of a sleep mode however hostilities continue in that area so um, my big fear, as I pointed out in the article in the Global Mail, which you cited, is that uh, as Russia uh, runs into more difficulties on the battlefield in Ukraine, I mean it's a humiliating loss for them right now, that they will use this plant to uh, press for concessions. You know, in a twisted mind such as Mr. Putin, it's uh, actually imaginable, imaginable that he would use such a dangerous weapon. So what uh, the IAEA and Western countries are calling for is for a demilitarization zone around the plant, so that there's no hostilities taking place, which would be a, a very good thing. Uh, the best thing, of course, is for the area to be liberated and for it to be returned to responsible Ukrainian control. But the, in terms of bringing pressure on Mr. Putin, um, you know, the nuclear, the state-owned nuclear atomic agency Rosatom, which has conducts business around the world, including providing uh, fuel to nuclear power plants. Uh, needs to be um, sanctioned immediately. Canada, uh, the United States could play a role in terms of leading this. I think one of the reasons they haven't so far is because even the United States does need that nuclear fuel from uh, Russia for its uh, nuclear power plants. Uh, There's a lack of it right now. So it's a very difficult situation. But um, what gives me also hope uh, is is that uh, Turkish President Erdogan is involved in the negotiations. Uh, he, you will recall, uh, brokered that uh, grain deal that has allowed the unblocking of the three ports near Odessa for grain to be starting to be, to be shipped uh, to the world to many countries that are on the brink of starvation. Uh, Mr. Erdogan played a big role in that with UN help, and uh, he was in Lviv recently, and this topic of the plan came up, and it's hoped that he will talk some sense into into Mr. Putin because uh, this is a very, very, very scaring and chilling scenario for the world. Should um, a missile, and by the way, missiles have struck part of the plant, uh, but should a missile land in one of the crucial areas, uh, you know, we could be in a very, very uh, dangerous scenario.
0: Michael, unfortunately, we're almost out of time, but I did want to ask one last question. Do you think that... The U.S. and Europe will continue to actively support Ukraine in its military struggle with Russia.
1: Yes, I do. I do. Uh, I I think the Biden administration, you know, it has come into criticism for not providing all of the uh, weaponry that Ukraine has asked for. But in terms of high-tech weapons, the HIMARS have been very effective in terms of even budgetary support. Ukraine will need about $5 billion uh, a month for for the foreseeable future, to, um, you know, be able to uh, fund its army, to be able to uh, fund social payments. So it's very, very important that the West does not become weak And my own country, Canada, needs to step up to the plate further. It has pretty much bungled its response to the Ukraine crisis, but there's more that Canada can do. There's a fear uh, that some European countries may... Uh, Succumb to domestic pressure and pull back on support to Ukraine because, you know, their um, their economies are pretty shaky. It's expected in the winter they're going to be suffering from uh, a lack of energy. Energy bills are skyrocketing in Europe, especially. Um, I mean, in Prague, about a week ago, there was a demonstration with seventy thousand protesters. Argue- they were protesting against uh, skyrocketing energy bills, and believe it or not, against um, sanctions against Russia because of the war in Ukraine. So it's a very complex environment, but I think uh, most Western leaders uh, realize, and of course, a lot of them are facing reelection in the next while, a lot of them realize that we cannot let our guard down because if we do, uh, if we do allow Mr. Putin to uh, get away with this uh, invasion, that uh, he won't stop uh, at the border of Ukraine. He'll go further into Poland and elsewhere. And he'll do things like conduct this uh, uh, weaponization of uh, of energy, of, of food, and migration. So he needs to be stopped. But I think a lot of Western leaders uh, in the past weeks have grown the spine to stand up to Mr. Putin. That they aren't uh, being, um, they're not letting themselves succumb to things like nuclear blackmail, and that Ukraine will be supported to do this to the end, possibly even driving the Russians out of Donetsk uh, and Luhansk and Crimea. So we're all very hopeful because um, this, uh, this needs to be seen, Michael, as uh, not just a war between Russia and Ukraine. It needs to be seen as a global war because look how much it's affected the world already, uh, Mr. Putin, needs to be stopped.
0: Michael, thank you so much for joining us today on Krenitsya. My pleasure. I have been speaking with the independent global affairs analyst and, and former journalist, Michael Bosyurkyu, about the war in Ukraine and various other topics of interest to the Ukrainian community. I'm Mike Burek, your host and producer of Krenitsa, the Well, a podcast series about interesting and noteworthy Ukrainians from around the globe. And this episode has been produced for the Ukrainian Weekly a newspaper that has been published in the U.S. in English for the global Ukrainian community since 1933. Until next time, that's all for now.